Good morning. I want to make a couple of little housekeeping notes, I guess, before we get started this morning. Um, one is regarding the hymn sing that is happening next week Sunday at Carol's Place. Uh, if you have not yet signed up and you are planning on going, please talk to Carol or to Evangeline. There's a sign-up sheet at the back uh, that you can put your name on as well as some song suggestions. They want to start preparing for that, both in terms of the music and knowing how many people to expect. So please sign up at the back, and I'm not sure if I'm forgetting anything. That's adequate? Okay. If those two ladies are happy, I am happy. The other thing is, uh, you've seen some construction this morning. We talked about it last week. Uh, The plans are up there. Uh, With the addition of a bathroom and a cry room for, uh, for the small ones, that's going to be going back there. Some people have been curious, well, does that mean we are committing to this place long term? No, it does not mean that. Uh, It means we want to make this place as comfortable and as accommodating as we can for the time that we are here, but we continue to actively look at other solutions that make sense, none of which have yet happened. Um, There's also plans to put in a a wood stove or something here to make the heat a little more even come uh, come the colder weather. So this is not a long-term commitment to here. Uh, It's saying while we're here, we're going to do as best we can, uh, and in God's timing and God's providence, we look forward to having uh, a building set uh, for full-time use. And if you have any other questions on that, please let us know. Uh, There is some cost, of course, with that, and and we have decided that depending on how long we are here for, uh, financial arrangements that are fair will be made between Don and us. If if we're out of here in four months' time, then we will make financial arrangements that 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 is uh, a fitting and fair solution. Uh, And it's also noteworthy that one of the benefits of staying here and making this work is we have not paid any rent at this point. Um, And so please keep that in mind too when we think about investments and and what makes sense is we are here for free at this point, thanks to Don and Val's hospitality. With that, turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 3. And we are going to be looking at the first 12 verses of Matthew 3 here today. This is on the ministry of John the Baptist. So once you have found your place in Scripture, then I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. These are the words of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. And you can be seated. 
We trust that God will bless the reading of his sufficient word. We're trying to ease our way and our minds into the story that's being told here and and the significance of this period of history as Jesus comes and his cousin John uh, is ahead of him um, sharing the kingdom of of God and repentance. And I am frozen up. Wonderful timing. Paper it is. (laughs) All right. So we've looked at this 400-year period of history, uh, and it's silent in terms of God giving revelation. God has been silent for 400 years. And so in this sense, it very much is a period of silence. That doesn't mean God's not working, because we looked at last week uh, and two weeks ago all the pieces that God is moving into place in terms of empires and kingdoms and, and the way things are going in the land of Israel in this time. So God is very much at work for preparing uh, for the coming of His Son. But in terms of revelation, in terms of God speaking, or in terms of Scripture being authored, nothing is happening. It is silent. But it remains a fascinating time in world history. And I looked at a few weeks ago, we looked at some of Daniel's prophecies, and they are so precise about what's going to happen in this period of time that some people have suggested that Daniel isn't authentic. It's so precise, clearly somebody wrote this after the events and pretended to be Daniel because, of course, predictive prophecy is impossible. uh, And that is just how detailed Daniel's prophecies are. So God is at work, but he's not giving new revelation at this time. Daniel saw this many, many years prior. And we'll pick up on Daniel again in a little bit because some of the imagery in this passage, uh, again, is rich in Old Testament language. But for now, I'm going to ask you a question to think about in your head. Who is the last prophet of the Old Covenant? Who is the last prophet of the Old Covenant? (laughs) Correct. (laughs) John the Baptist is the last prophet of the Old Covenant. We read about him in the, in the New Testament, so we tend to think uh, that he is uh, an old or a New Testament character, but he is, in fact, a prophet of the Old Covenant. Christ has not yet uh, died and risen and been ascended back to heaven, and so John the Baptist is indeed an Old Testament prophet. And if you're thinking, just in terms of your books of the Bible, your very last book of your New Testament, we read, or Old Testament, we read from this morning, is the book of Malachi. So in some ways, maybe it's natural to think, well, Malachi is the last prophet. And in terms of the books of your Bible, you are correct. Malachi was the last prophet uh, recorded in the Old Testament, even though John the Baptist carries uh, that ministry into the New Testament. And if you're thinking of Malachi... It's interesting to note the very last verses of the Old Testament. So just before God shuts the lights off and everything is about to go dark, these are the very last words that we hear from God through his prophet. If you want to turn there, you can. Your bookmark is still in Malachi from Tim's Law reading this morning. Hopefully you picked up on some of the imagery there. But go to the very, very, very end of your Old Testament, right before the Gospel of Matthew picks up. In Malachi 4, 5, and 6, it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah and the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's it. That's what you hear. 
and then the lights get shut off. And you can almost hear it audibly, like at a football game when the lights go off, click, 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 silence. This is the last word of God you're going to hear for many, many years. It is true, because predictive prophecy is possible, because of God's omniscience, Daniel's empires that he saw come and go, but there's no prophet living with them at this time. They're living through a storm of world-changing history, and God is silent. Deafening silence for 400 years. That's 10 generations in the Bible. A generation's about 40 years in the Bible. 10 generations. Think of yourself and go back 10 generations. Think of your ancestors in the year 1622. Do you feel particularly close to them? Do you think you see the world the way they did? Could you name one of them? This is a long silence, a deafening silence. And if we think then in those terms about the state of the lostness of God's people, when we get into the New Testament, uh, it, it bears thinking of how far removed they are from the people we read about in the Old Testament. They're on familiar land, but everything is different. We know from biblical history, northern Israel fell to Assyria, Babylon eats up Assyria and then conquers Judah, then the Medo-Persians come and take Babylon, then Alexander and the Greeks came and took all that, and they introduced their new language, so now you're not even speaking the language of your grandparents anymore. And with language change comes changes of thought, changes of the way we categorize information. They're living in a very different world than what Malachi was. And most recently, the Romans have now come and displaced the Greeks, and in their rule, this changes from a republic to an empire, and this also drastically changes the way things are working in Palestine. And I just want us to feel the weight of all this world-changing history, and then the relative silence of God, this deafening silence, and you are 400 years removed from any information about what you're going through, and it's just major upheaval after upheaval after upheaval. It might be easy to think, if your grandparents were still kind enough to tell you the stories about their great-great-great-grandparents all those years ago, there might still be a memory of the living God. But it's largely been eclipsed by a very secular and very pagan society all around you. It might be easy to think, God, what are you doing? Or you may think, is God even relevant? We live in this modern, contemporary, cosmopolitan age, and, and the Romans and the Greeks have brought all their gods in. Who, you know, who are we to say that the God of our ancestors was the true God. We're, we're living in the modern world. We're living in the Roman Empire, after all. Who's to say we're the only right ones? Has God forgotten about his promises? Is Malachi just some irrelevant old guy that doesn't know anything? Because it's been 400 years and Elijah still hasn't come back. What's up with that? And then you turn here, and this chapter just starts with this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Who is this guy? Matthew just introduces him as a grown-up preacher. We learn more about who John the Baptist is in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 1, 12-17, we read, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and a fear fell upon him. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong, strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 
It's interesting to note, we know at least one person who was born again before they were physically born, and that's John the Baptist. And he will turn, this is significant here, remember what we just read in Malachi, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is a significant piece of information. So after 400 years of waiting for Malachi's prophecy, Luke now clearly tells us that the clock is moving again. Things are moving. God is acting in history. The silence is over and we're rolling once again. And what does John preach? Look at his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus starts preaching, next chapter in Matthew 4, Jesus' message starts the same way. Repent. That's the message. How many preachers today invite you to start living your best life now? Or to give you 12 steps to a happier marriage? Or, or inviting you to give Jesus a try. Give Jesus 40 days, one popular Baptist preacher said. Give Jesus 40 days and see what happens. So this is a wager? We're playing roulette with Jesus? Is that really the gospel of the Old and the New Testament? How different is it that John and Jesus start with repent? It's not some second-rate gospel. Repent. This isn't an offer. It's a command. Do it. Repent. You people are sinful. Repentance is often in the Bible spoken together with faith because these two together are the positive and negative actions of the same motion. Repentance is a turning from and faith is a turning towards. And if we're going to do a 180, if I'm going to turn this direction this way, I'm at the same time, in the same motion, I'm turning from one thing and towards another. Repentance is turning from, faith is turning towards. Repentance is turning your, your back on the old man, on the old sinful life. There's a change of mind, there's a change of character, there's a change of desire. And faith is turning to something. We're not just forsaking the past, we're turning to Christ. There's a fundamental change, a full 180. Repentance and faith are the negative and positive side of the same action. And when we come to Christ in repentance and faith, it means we are turning back on the old man, on the old sinful nature, and we are turning to the new man in Christ to be covered by his righteousness and then to be escorted by him to the Father so we can be adopted into his Father's family. And this is the starting point for all the other glorious truths that are in the gospel. And there's more than just personal conversion that's attached to the gospel, but this is the starting point. This is how you and you and you get in to the gospel. This has to be the starting point, is conversion. And Malachi saw that John, as the new Elijah, would come before the day of the Lord. And now John is warning the people that the kingdom of God is at hand. And often when we hear about language about the day of the Lord, uh, if you're like me, frequently you just fast forward all of that to the final, last day of the Lord, at the final judgment when Christ returns. And that certainly is the most catastrophic of all the days of the Lord. Uh, but the day of the Lord is used any time God tears down an old empire or, or when he comes in some kind of magnificent way. So the exodus of the people from Egypt was a day of the Lord. They left the most powerful nation on earth a smoldering crater. That is a day of the Lord. Jesus Christ coming into earth 
is a day of the Lord. And these are all leading up to the ultimate final day of the Lord, which is yet future. But the day of the Lord is when God intervenes drastically in history, as he indeed has and is doing. This language is used all through the Old and New Testament. And similarly, John says in the same motion that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is up right on top of these people. It's staring them right in the eyes. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Heaven has come down to earth. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Other gospels talk about the kingdom of God. So why does Matthew say the kingdom of heaven? Are they talking about two different things? And I don't think so. I think it's the same thing. But remember, we've seen again and again, Matthew is very self-consciously writing to Jewish Christians. And he is presenting things in a way that makes sense to them. And the Jews were very scrupulous about not blaspheming, not using God's name lightly. So they tended to move away from using God's name. And so the kingdom of heaven is a respectful way to talk about the same reality without using the word God and possibly offending uh, some of these people. And I think it's easy for us in our time of similar upheaval to hit one of two ditches when we think about what it means that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. One ditch would be to pull it all into the present, to treat everything as though it's now complete. This is a one and done. The kingdom of heaven came, uh, and so therefore all these promises of future salvation uh, are now a reality right now. And this is the, the, the error that the prosperity gospel people make. They're assuming that future prosperity and future uh, immortality means right now. Right now I'm not going to age. Right now I'm not going to get cancer. Okay? If you're in an accident, it's your fault for not having enough faith. Why? Well, because the Bible promises ultimate salvation. That's taking all these future promises and collapsing them into today, which is a problem. We're not there yet. But another challenge can be to, pull it, to push it all into the future as though nothing happened as though there wasn't real-life, physical, world-changing history that is established, or that the world and the cosmic governance of the world remains entirely unaffected by the incarnation, death, resurrection, and the ascension back to heaven of Jesus Christ. And so in this sense, Jesus may come to save individual sinners, but the governance of the cosmos is unaffected. And I think this is an over-spiritualized view. It doesn't see that there's real-life consequences today right now. And so maybe we can break this down, shrink it down into your own salvation. Your conversion will be consummated at your death. It will be made perfect. Jolin's dad is experiencing this perfect, uh, visible rule, this consummated kingdom right now. We can also think of betrothals or weddings A betrothal indicates a new reality, but this is not consummated or made complete until the wedding day. So the time we're living in between Christ coming here and his second coming is where this kingdom is somehow established, but not yet mature or perfected. And it's worth thinking about these themes like kingdom or covenant, because these are going to appear again and again in the Gospels. John captures both the individual and the cosmic element here, when he tells individual people to repent because the kingdom is at hand. He's making it personal and cosmic. You repent because the kingdom is at hand. In verse 3, he says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And Matthew connects this, or Matthew connects John here to Isaiah chapter 40. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So John is out in the wilderness, and he is announcing the coming of Christ, the consolation and the comfort of Jerusalem. Moving on through 4 to 6. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And when when they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. So we've seen repeatedly how God concerns himself with perfecting even the smallest details as he writes the story of history, right down to John's wardrobe. If you read in 2 Kings 1 and uh, verse 8, it talks about uh, Elijah's wardrobe. Okay, And it's a wardrobe of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. John is the Elijah that has been anticipated. Elijah is back. He's back in the story. And the diet... John's diet of locusts and wild honey is entirely consistent with this wilderness lifestyle. This is the food that is available out in the desert. So John's announcement about the kingdom of heaven being at hand draws enough attention that people are coming from all over the region to be baptized by him. We had a number of baptism services this Sunday, and we talked about the word baptizo, uh, which means to go under, to be submerged, to be made wet. And this is evidently the practice of what was happening here. They're in a river, so evidently this was the practice of going down and coming up. And since the time of Christ, of course, there's added significance to Christian baptism. The symbolism of the triune nature of Father, Son, and Spirit is much more explicit. And the symbolism of Christ going down in death and coming up in resurrection uh, is also a new significance that, that wouldn't have been there yet because Jesus had not yet died at this time. So we may ask, well, what was the significance of what they were doing then? What was Old Testament baptism about? And it was this. If Gentiles, if non-ethnic Jewish people wanted to convert to Judaism, they could, in fact, be converted and grafted in, but they had to be baptized as a symbolic cleansing for their sins. They were dirty, and they were coming into the people of God, so they needed a washing, a ceremonial washing. And so this is a baptism of repentance, as verse 6 confirms. They were baptized as they confessed their sins. And so Jews that were confessing their sins and being baptized were showing a kind of inner repentance that was appropriate for the coming Messiah. If you were a Jew, you didn't have to be baptized. You were clean, ethnically. But now there's people coming, Jewish people coming to be baptized. This is significant. You're doing something you don't have to do. You're showing an inner repentance, the inner reality of of being washed and cleaned and being prepared for your Messiah is there. And it is interesting to note that in this region it was the common people and not the nobility that were coming for John's baptism. The scribes and the Pharisees do show up, but they weren't there to get baptized. They were there to watch. And so just like the religious leaders were shown up by the Magi at Christ's birth, they're again being shown up by the common people at John's baptism. And this might be a great place to stop and make application for ourselves. What would you have done in this situation? What would you have done? 
You're being confronted with a new message of repentance. And you're, in one sense, uh, shaming yourself by going out to the desert. I mean, this wasn't some elaborate cathedral. This is a wild man wearing wild clothing, preaching an, a, a, a kind of a crusty message of repentance. And you're going out to the desert. This isn't some air-conditioned place with plush seating and a magnificent speaker. This is a prophet who eats insects and who's dressed in camel hair, preaching a message of repentance. And somehow, weirdly, people are drawn to this. What's going on? Where would you have been? Would we have been willing to put up with the embarrassment of going out into the wilderness and listening to the gospel of this man? Or would we have brushed him off as a crazy, trusting that somehow me and you are above all this? Think of how strong the pull and the desire for cultural respectability is. It was strong then, it's strong today. Okay? Cultural respectability is a powerful motivator, and these people were brave enough to push through it and receive John's baptism. Verse 7, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? These religious leaders were not coming to be baptized themselves, but rather to observe what was happening so they could report it back in Jerusalem. And so often we read about Pharisees and Sadducees in the Bible, we kind of think they're a similar group, but they were oil and water, these groups. The Pharisees started as a religious renewal movement, men of scripture, started off as a good thing. They they wanted to bring uh, Israel back to scripture. It was a back to the Bible movement at its start. Uh, And it very quickly became a hypocritical, ingrown, self-righteous movement. Uh, And ironically, these men's traditions started to trump Scripture itself. These were the legalists of this time. The Sadducees were on the exact opposite. The Sadducees always had a reason for why we have to obey Rome on every last question. These were the compromisers. These were the theological liberals of their day. Do as you're told. Okay? They were cultural Jewish people, but they were not believing Jewish people. Uh, and they trimmed their Bibles down so it was very, very minimal scripture. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in a future resurrection, uh, physical resurrection of the dead. These were the theological liberals of their day. Okay? So these are not like-minded people. This is oil and water, both in disagreement with John, but both present there. <clears throat> knowing how different these groups were and that John is being opposed by both of them, it doesn't take much imagination to see how well these kinds of groups map over our own time. Are there legalists today? I'd say so. Is there liberalism today? I, I, I tend to think so. Okay. Yes. Okay. These, these problems are both present with us today. It's not hard to make application if you understand what's happening in this story. There's a strong pull for respectable uh, cultural respectability. There's two groups on opposite ends of the spectrum, both opposed to what John is doing, and people are going out for his baptism. Then, as now, whether the religious authorities were of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, these men were accustomed to receiving respect. They were, after all, the leaders of the time. 
They were used to being called rabbi on the street and being asked for their opinion, asked to weigh in on important matters and sit at the city gate and, and, and share their wisdom. Think of that. And then think of how John addresses them. He looks them in the eye and says, you brood of vipers. <laughs> whoa, 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 I'm used to being called rabbi. Don't you know? Did your mother not teach you respect? You brood of vipers. You snake oil salesmen. You scam artists. You scum of the earth. Unfortunately, John did not have time to read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People at this point in time. But he is showing these men the appropriate amount of respect. His warning about the wrath to come is striking because it's a warning of wrath that's aimed right at their hearts. And they were assuming they had nothing to fear. Heaven awaits those who enter the kingdom through repentance and faith, but wrath awaits all those outside the kingdom, regardless of their ethnicity and regardless of their religious titles. God doesn't care about your religious title. He cares whether you're in Christ or outside of Christ. And then John elaborates in verse 8 and 9. He says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And so the sin of these people, and I think this is a common sin now, is the sin of presumption. Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is hard work. If you've ever done the work in your life of putting sinful behavior to death and trying to grow in holiness, you know how hard a fight this is. This is a bare-knuckle fistfight with sin. It's difficult. It's much easier to presume upon things. And the besetting sin of these men, of these Sadducees and Pharisees, was to rest on their ethnicity, as though their Jewishness and being sons of Abraham could save them. But Abram can't save them. Abram was a herald, a promise of coming salvation, but just being his descendant doesn't save you. Faith in the Messiah saves and so before we get too critical about them, how do we do this? Uh, maybe you've got a background like me, and you're pretty proud of your background. And you might think, well, there's nothing left for me to do. I'm already a plat from Landmark. There's literally nothing left for me to do. Okay? I already won the jackpot. There's, I'm good. I'm good. Right? Maybe that's what we're proud of. Maybe you volunteer somewhere. And maybe your volunteer service is very uh, well received and people respect you and people love you because of it. Are you presuming upon that? Maybe you're just a nice person and you're presuming on that. And there is a besetting sin in our culture of presumption. It's not usually based on ethnicity, although I, that kind of racial superiority certainly does still exist today. But in our time, I think it's more common to presume that everybody goes to heaven. And some have called this justification by death. How do you go to heaven? Well, you just die. It's very simple. Justification by death works in our culture, right? That, that's the only criteria to enter heaven. All you have to do is die. You wake up in heaven. Okay? That is presumption. There's no salvation. There's no repentance. There's no Jesus Christ that's necessary for that. Just die, and you're automatically in heaven. And so in some ways, our presumption may actually be worse than that of the Sadducees and Pharisees, because at least they knew God didn't indiscriminately owe everybody salvation. I think we tend to, in our culture, think everybody is just owed salvation. But all these things, when and where we're born, your ancestry, all these things are God's doing, not our own. And so a fitting reminder comes when John tells these men that God could turn the rocks in front of them into children of Abraham. And these rocks 
actually probably have some significance. If you uh, compare this passage with John 1.28 and then go back and compare that to Joshua 4.20, it appears that these stones are actually Joshua's monument. This is where John is giving his his baptism, is at uh, at this monument that uh, Joshua had set up, right? So there's a visible, tangible reminder of the way God has been good to them in the past, And he said, but the sons of Abraham are no more responsible for their background than these stones are. I think it's a fitting picture if this is indeed exactly where they are, which it seems to be. So why be proud and arrogant about something for which you should be thankful instead? Does it make any sense to be arrogant over something that you had no part of? That makes no sense whatsoever. The only proper posture is thankfulness, gratitude to God. In verse 10, it says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the language, once again, is in the present tense. So just as the kingdom of heaven is at hand, staring them right in the eyes, right on top of them, so is the pruning axe. The language of cutting out dead branches and grafting in living ones is pervasive in much of the New Testament. And the constant confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders in Israel is going to be a constant reminder of this truth. The dividing line is not your family tree, but rather saving faith. And John is announcing this coming confrontation with his first swing of the axe. He's taken the first swing right to the root, and he's preparing these people for Christ to pick up this axe and take the next swing. All unbelief, all fruitless branches are going to be cut off and thrown into the fire And this remains today as true as ever. Again, while some people may still think in terms of racial superiority in our own time, I think the more common issue is people assuming that some kind of casual church affiliation or being a nice person or simply being a human being at all simply means that we are destined for heaven. But John's warning here is every bit as relevant for you and for me as it was in the first century. Church attendance, good behavior, and baptism are all fruits of true repentance, but they are not the root. These things cannot save us. They may be evidence of your salvation, but they will not save you. The root issue here is repentance and faith. And if we don't possess these, we are outside the kingdom of heaven, waiting for the axe to cut us off. And at the close of this passage here, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. This is verse 11 and 12. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here again, John is offering the symbol. Christ is about to offer the substance. He's about to deliver. And Jesus is mightier than John. And so John sees himself as little more than a messenger. And how true should this be for all of us who are involved in teaching and preaching? Who or what are we preaching? Visiting with one gentleman between Sunday school and church this morning, talking about some of these popular TV preachers. Think of how different this can be, how different this can be. Many popular preachers have got lots of stories, lots of personal anecdotes, And we all know the preacher who is always the hero of his own story. You ever met a preacher like that? He's always the good guy in all his stories. 
there's a few principles about preaching from the text. Exegesis, we, we, we practice here, with, well, we, by God's grace, want to practice what's here called exegetical preaching. That just means going verse by verse and trying to draw the meaning out of the text. So exegesis is drawing the meaning out of the text. Eisegesis is when we take our preconceived notions and try to force them into the text. And narcegesis is when a preacher finds himself in every text. And he's here to share it with you. And how often do we get this completely upside down on the contemporary scene? Classically, a preacher may tell a story, a personal story or anecdote that's happened in his life to use that as the launch pad to the bigger story of redemption. So he uses an illustration in his own life, for example, to make a point about the bigger story that he's preaching, be that David or Noah or Jeremiah or Christ. You're using something in your life to point to the bigger. You're the floodlight pointing to the bigger. But today we very often get this backwards. And many preachers start with an illustration from the Bible to point the floodlight on the greater reality of me. You see how this is totally backwards? Instead of me using something that happened in my life to point to the text, we're using the text to point to me. I'm the hero, right? And so this is how the story of David and Goliath is not so much a story about uh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's a story about you and how to put the five smooth stones to a better marriage in your pouch, okay? This is backwards. It's not Christ-centered preaching. And this man-centered preaching has to stop right now, if there is ever going to be any kind of lasting reformation in our churches, we must preach Christ and not man. We must. And by God's grace, please hold us to account on this. We have to see ourselves like John the Baptist, as simple servants pointing away from ourselves to a mighty Savior. And this is the Savior who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Our rebirth, our conversion, is brought about by the Holy Spirit taking out our heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. And therefore, all believers, all true believers, do have the Holy Spirit convicting them of sin, bringing us to repentance, and growing us in holiness. But what is this business about the baptism of fire? I cannot improve on the words of Matthew Henry, so I will read him on this passage. Is fire enlightening? So the spirit is a spirit of illumination. Is it warming? And do not their hearts burn within them? Is it consuming? And does not the spirit of judgment as a spirit of burning consume the dross of their corruption? Does fire, uh, does fire make all it seizes like itself? And does it move upwards? So does the spirit make the, the soul holy like itself, and its tendency is heavenward. And then we close this passage with a picture of wheat and chaff being separated, with the wheat being brought in and the chaff being burned with with an unquenchable fire. And there's two notes on this language. One is the threshing floor image is abundant in Scripture. We see it a few weeks ago in the genealogy of Jesus, Boaz and Ruth. That story largely happens at threshing time. Going back to Daniel's vision about this coming kingdom in chapter 2, verses 35 and 44, this kind of imagery is used. As the new kingdom topples the old one, there has to be a sorting out and a taking over. As the kingdom that Daniel sees grows, it does so at the expense of the idolatry. And so the sifting and threshing language becomes natural. John's announcement of the kingdom is connected to repentance, 
grafting in and cutting out of real-life people in the real-life world. And this goes against some of the modern concepts of what is today called radical two-kingdom theology, which essentially just spiritualizes the one kingdom, and though God isn't interested in art. God's not interested so much in your work. He's not interested in economics or education. God's uninterested with all those things. He's just worried about this internal pietistic kind of kingdom, as though he's not lord of the real world. Many of us have grown up deeply in radical two-kingdom theology, and I don't think it's helpful. There's very real-world consequences to this. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. Like many prophecies, there is a close-up layer that is going to happen right here, right now in Jerusalem, as Christ performs his earthly ministry. And this is a picture of the final judgment, when all opposition to God is not just destroyed in one city, but across the cosmos. And the fire that's burning here is unquenchable, which means it doesn't stop. The fire of God's wrath can only be satisfied by Christ, and so anyone not found to be in Christ is chaff. They are headed for this fire that cannot be quenched. And I mentioned it from this pulpit before about this teaching of annihilation that is fast moving from a fringe position, which it really should remain that. It's an actual heresy to becoming a very majorly accepted doctrine, even in conservative southeastern Manitoba. Not only does this doctrine find no support in the history of Christian thought, more importantly, it rails against this language in Scripture. How does one quench an unquenchable fire? It's unquenchable. How does it stop? It doesn't. That's the, that's the language. If God's wrath could actually be satisfied by an unforgiven sinner, have we not just admitted that we can earn God's pardon apart from Christ? That there is, in fact, a point at which we have actually made full satisfaction and it stops? Are we going to suggest that those who are thrown into eternal torment suddenly stop in their sin and their rebellion against God? And they're converted in hell, essentially? Does that make any sense? This language is there for a reason. An unquenchable fire. I checked it out in the Greek. It means... Are you ready? Unquenchable. <laughs> okay? The translators did not get it wrong. This language is doing work. So here we have a snapshot of John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist is the new Elijah that is promised at the end of the Old Testament. And he has entered the story at just the right time, preparing the people for the day of the Lord and the coming of his kingdom that they are about to see. Because there is only one gospel and one way of salvation all through scripture, John preaches the same gospel as the prophets who went before him and of Jesus and the apostles who are going to come after him. It's a gospel of free grace given through the instrument of repentance and faith. And just like many of the women in Jesus' genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the Gentiles here can indeed be grafted in by faith. Just like Esau, Zerah, Jehoiakim, and the Pharisees, can be cut off due to their unbelief. And so some application here should seem very natural for us. We have the context of a politically turbulent time in which there are many religious options and many people are religiously lost. The options of legalism and liberalism are both clearly on display, as are the options of political revolution or political servility. Does that sound like anything you might know about? It sounds like today, doesn't it? The options are the same. In our own time, we need to be constantly reminded that Christ serves as the ultimate dividing line. The reason John's 
preaching was appealing wasn't because he was such a smooth man. He clearly wasn't. It's because he was offering something that was different than the alternatives of the religious landscape at the time. He offered true hope. He offered a real gospel, a real Christ for a real problem. We may mostly not trust in our genealogy as the Sadducees and Pharisees did, but we all have our own cultural assumptions that make us think we're off the hook. But we are in need of the same message of repentance and preparation that John the Baptist preached 2,000 years ago. And I would personally love to assume that every one of us here is saved. But this could be a dangerous assumption if it's based on simply presumption that we're in church on Sunday morning, therefore we're saved. We want to give true believers full and complete assurance of salvation. The Bible does, in fact, offer that. But woe to the church and woe to the teacher who gives assurance of salvation to those people who do not possess faith in Jesus Christ. As individuals and as a church, may we ever be mindful to preach Christ instead of ourselves. Let's not cut dying people off from their cure by telling them that they're not really dying. They are. The problem is real. The fall is pervasive, and Christ is our one and only hope. And in light of this, let's resolve more than ever to be part of taking the gospel to the nations, whether by going or by sending or by supporting. And it should also be noted that the nations do include Canada. The nations include the little children that you bring into your house. That's also part of global discipleship. The transfer of faith needs to happen in our own homes, And so this should be the the foremost place where true discipleship starts. And so let's think about that. This is the dividing line. John's message of repentance remains as the dividing line all through history. There is no hope outside of Christ. Let's remember that as we share him with others. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for setting the table just right. Intervening in history at just the right moment after you have prepared everything, after a 400 painful years of silence, that you send your messenger John again to announce the coming of his cousin cousin Jesus. Lord, I thank you for their unashamed message of repentance, of conversion, of turning from sin and turning to you. Lord, and I pray for each of us here who may well presume on uh, things that you may have gifted us with, but which cannot save us. Lord, whether that's a good family or a noble last name or church attendance or being a nice person, Lord, help us to get over ourselves. Help us to see that the dividing line of your kingdom is repentance and faith and not anything that we bring in our hands. Lord, strip us bare of our assumptions. Strip us bare of our pride and our self-sufficiency. And I pray that we would have a renewed sense of what it means to be grafted in by the grace of of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that for each one here. And then I pray that having our sins forgiven, we would find full and free assurance that you will save us to the uttermost. Lord, we thank you for this and pray that you'd be with us as we go. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So the charge is this. Pride and presumptions are the factory setting on every person born after the fall. Our pride creates the laziness of assuming that we are automatically right with God and keeps us from actually becoming right with God. The message of John the Baptist's gospel cuts us right to the heart. How can we flee from the wrath to come? 
There is a dividing line between the common people who humiliated themselves with repentant baptism and the religious leaders who consoled themselves with arrogant presumption. And this line cuts all through history right to the current day. The way into the kingdom of heaven remains the same as it ever has, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's remain soft-hearted and grateful as we are reminded that we have received this kingdom by grace and not by merit. And I'll leave you with the benediction from 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our God, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And amen.